Good morning, Saginaw First. My name is Kevin DeVries, and I am the founder and president of Grace Explorations, which is a nationwide gospel-centered men's storytelling movement that meets where men already are in locations all across uh, North America and, for that matter, hopefully someday the world. Uh, great honor and privilege to be here with you this morning. I was hoping to be there live and in person, but we all know that there's a, a bit of a quarantine that's going on currently, and so we'll use the wonderful thing uh, called technology to be able to come to you uh, here this morning in the privacy of your own living room, wherever you are, to listen to this message. So a huge thank you to Pastor Kurt for this invitation. Kurt and I go back some 25, 30 years. I haven't seen Kurt in probably a quarter of a century, but in the early 90s, we were both uh, youth pastoring during that era and uh, did a lot of stuff together in kingdom work. And I just have always appreciated uh, Pastor Kurt uh, just for who he is and for what he does, um, I've rarely met, in fact, I don't think I've ever met a person who has had really a bad thing to say about Pastor Kurt. He's just a good man. Uh, he has a lovely wife, a great family, and I'm so pleased when I first heard that he was going to be the pastor at Saginaw First. I thought, you know what, that's the right man for the right time at the right hour. So um, I'm sure that you would join me in thanking Pastor Kurt for following the call of God in his life and how that intersects with you here at Saginaw First. Also, a huge shout out to um, Pastor Leon Bodine, who I worked on staff with in the early 90s. He was the music minister um, and I was the youth pastor, and so we've had a lot of time together. And again, a 25, 30-year relationship, and I don't think I've seen Pastor Leon probably for a quarter of a century as well. So it feels kind of uh, interesting that we now meet again in this virtual format but uh, that's the beauty of technology, that we can meet and uh, walk through a, an incredible story together and hopefully take something away that we can learn together from. So the title of my message this morning is called Eucatastrophe, uh, which the last part of that word is more familiar to us, catastrophe, which in many ways describes what our current situation is here in the world, specifically uh, America. Um, and we all know that catastrophe is really things that have a bad ending. Uh, it's something that we fear, it's something that we dread, and I think that in many ways describes some of the current mood that we're dealing with our nation today is we're all trying to figure out how this thing is going to end. What is the end game of the coronavirus, and how does this play out on every level of society, not just how we gather for worship on Sunday morning, but what we do all week with our families, with our jobs, with our financial futures. So we're very uh, cognitive of that word, but I would like to use this word called eucatastrophe, which one of my favorite authors, J.R. Tolkien, coined several decades ago and described a lot of his work. And he turned this word because it describes really the opposite of a catastrophe, which is instead of a terrible ending, it's a sudden, unforeseen, unlooked for, unexpected, good ending. When everything goes really bad, everything all of a sudden in an unexpected way goes really right. And in many ways, that describes the Easter story, which is something that we're going to be celebrating, I'm sure, with uh, the approach of Easter coming up next month and Lent and, and the process of preparing our hearts for the greatest eucatastrophe that the world has ever known and will ever know uh, again. And so I'd like to take us to the book of John. If you can turn open your Bibles or on your device, and let's look at John chapter 20, verses 11 through 17, which is a great story, a great story of a eucatastrophe where everything seemed to have gone wrong. The disciples are incredible disarray. They're disillusioned. They're confused. They're afraid, uh, much like many of us uh, today, as what, what does the future look like? Our founder 
Um, our leader has just died a horrific death in ways that we could not have foreseen. And now this movement that he started that we had given three years of our life to is now all of a sudden vanished and, and we don't understand what he was saying and we don't understand what some of these parables were. And everything seems to have a hidden meaning, something uh, uh, that we should understand feels encrypted, it feels uh, distant from us. And so we're trying to discover what does life look like from here? And so that's where we jump into this story in John, the 20th chapter, where the disciples and Mary and other people are trying to figure out what does life look like from this point moving forward because it feels like a catastrophe. It feels like this is a terrible ending that's just going to get worse and worse. Uh, we don't understand the story that we're in, and so we're misinterpreting the story. And uh, Mary comes to this point where she courageously uh, enters into this narrative. And we find in verse 11, if we want to read together here, in verse 11 it says, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Verse 13, And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Verse 15, he asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, please tell me where you have put him, and I will go get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, she told them, and that he had said these things to her. So here's a powerful thought. Um, and Mary is the first evangelist here, which I love because... Uh, in that day and age, in the first century, women were not considered equal citizens to men. But God, of all people, through his son, Jesus Christ, designed this story to focus on this person of Mary, the first evangelist, the first apostle, if you will, who had encountered and rightly interpreted this story that here was the living Christ in front of her. The beauty of this uh, should not be lost to us. The poetic application is such that here we are in a garden uh, that's filled with tombs, that um, has a gardener, or at least what we think to be a gardener. And Mary turns to this person and believes him to be the gardener. And I think maybe what God is saying to us through a poetic lens is, if we put our God goggles on for a moment, is uh, Adam was the first Adam, and he failed in Eden. But Jesus Christ is the second Adam who succeeded in eternity. He did something that the first Adam couldn't do, and he took this curse of sin and death and fear um, and he, he took that with him to the grave and was resurrected by the pure power of love. And so I'd like to ask you a question or pose this idea to you, and I'll come back to it later. But Mary is the first person that was able to bridge this gap of, instead of asking why this is happening to me, bridging it with this other idea of what is God doing through me. And when we can bridge from that question of why is this happening to me, which is, feels a lot like with the coronavirus, is why is this happening to me, what if we could uh, bridge that gap with a secondary thought of what is God doing through me or what is God doing through this situation or maybe in an easier way to remember is I wonder what God is up to. 
And when we can do that, we'll begin to discover that God is actually in every situation. The risen Christ will be seen properly and appropriately in every single situation. And that's really the challenge for us, is to discover uh, Christ in all situations. And Mary is just like us. She's in this story, and she's disturbed, and she's anxious, and she's fearful. She feels like this is a catastrophe. And then Jesus speaks to her those words, Mary, and all of a sudden all these uh, revelations, these epiphanies, these points of light come together to the extent that she's able to see very clearly that this is indeed the risen Christ. So stop asking the question of why is this happening to me or to us and start asking this question, what is God doing through me? Or maybe even better yet, what is God up to in the middle of this situation that is impacting the world today with this coronavirus issue. And maybe if we ask the right question, maybe, just maybe, we're going to see the risen Christ in every situation, that he is with us, he is suffering through us and with us. We actually come into the presence of Christ through uh, his wounds and through these questions. So I'd like to take you to a story here, and then I have a couple of points to make from that that you can kind of do as a take-home but I'd like to take you to September 21st, where I had my own huge catastrophe. Uh, it was a normal day. It was actually a hot day. It was in the evening, probably around 7 o'clock or so on September the 21st. It was a weekend, and I went for my normal five-and-a-half-mile loop to run. And uh, I was just out on this normal five-and-a-half-mile loop, and I left the house. I didn't even have a shirt on. It was hot. It was about 80 degrees. I just had my running shorts, my running shoes. I had no identification on me whatsoever because I thought, hey, this is just going to be a normal run. I wasn't feeling all that great, but I wasn't feeling horrible either. But I knew getting into the run early that this isn't going to be a great run. And so about halfway through the run, I passed by uh, an EM EMS station. And then a little bit further than that, I actually passed by a graveyard, which is called Cascade Cemetery. And it sits up on a ridge. Uh, it's high up, and I thought, you know what, I'm not going to have a good run today, so why not just take a little stroll through the graveyard, read some gravestones, maybe I'll feel a little bit better, and then I can proceed with my run back home. So I do that. I walk into the garden, or into the, the uh, cemetery, if you will, which feels a little bit like a garden, almost like uh, the book of John, the 20th chapter, and I, I walk into this uh, cemetery, and realize that there's somebody all dressed in white working on a grave, which I thought was kind of unusual. His back is towards me. I'm not making facial recognition. Uh, I'm not sure that this person even acknowledged that I was there, but I could see them from probably about 100 yards off, and I noticed, well, this is kind of strange. If I was working in the dirt and working around a gravestone, a headstone, I don't think I would be all dressed in white. Um, that's just me. Maybe some of you would, but I wouldn't. Um, and so I just kind of tucked that on my memory, and I remember reading a couple of, of gravestones and just kind of wandering around, killing about 10 minutes on the clock, and thought, well, that's just kind of strange. Somebody's all dressed in white, didn't know what to make of it. Their, his back was turned towards me, and so I was not able to uh, make any facial recognition, but just kind of tucked that away, exited the graveyard, ran downhill, and then came on the busiest part of the trail, Cascade Road in Cascade, Michigan, in the southeast uh, part of Grand Rapids, and was running running downhill, and things kind of were starting to move a little bit in slow motion, but there was no pain. And then the next thing I remember was um, my spirit leaving my body. It felt very natural. In fact, it felt, quite frankly, like a relief, like now I'm finally 
who I really am, who I was created to be, and I can leave this tent, this body that I've occupied for X amount of years, in my case, 52 years, and I can now become all that I am in the image of Christ. So it felt completely natural. Um, I was not in control of the narrative as it took place from this point onward. Uh, I was a bystander, if you will. And so everything that happened after my spirit left my body was something that I could not conjure up through my own imagination. It was something that was happening to me and I had no control over it whatsoever, which is really emblematic of life. We always think we're in control, but that's actually a massive illusion. Christ is in control. Uh, Our job is just to figure out what story he is writing and to become a part of that, realizing that he writes his story, which is epic, cosmic, large, uh, through our little stories, through our smaller stories, if you will. So my spirit leaves my body. I soar up over, the, up over the ridge, which is called Pine Ridge, back to Cascade Cemetery. And this time, instead of this uh, male with his back towards me, all dressed in white, is now facing me. But the light that is coming out of him feels like uh, light that darkness has never touched or has never known, which is actually biblical that Christ is the light of the world and that the darkness could not understand or comprehend him. And I felt like this light was so illuminating and it was so bright and it was so brilliant. Uh, It was not painful, but it was so blinding that I could not make any facial features out of this person. And so I felt like in many ways, like, wow, I am standing before the epicenter of everything that we know from eternity into time and back into eternity, that the whole cosmos, that all of creation is embodied in this person that is standing in front of me. And then I felt in that moment also a tremendous amount of love. Love to the extent that um, it was so powerful that if it was light that darkness had never touched, then this was love that fear has never felt. Perfect love. We know from the New Testament, that perfect love drives out fear. And I felt like the embodiment of love was in front of me to an extent that there was no real estate, there was no space for this powerful emotion that we're dealing with right now every day, this thing called fear. It's the only time I've ever felt it in my human existence, and it may be the only time that I ever feel it again until I enter into uh, eternity. This space where there's no room for fear, where all that I feel is love and all that I feel is belonging. It's actually, I would say, beyond belief. I would say that this particular moment, uh, it was was suspended. It was beyond belief. It was actually uh, something much deeper because my belief at that point simply brought me to this point of belonging. And I felt this incredible sense, this deep sense of belonging that moment that was even beyond belief. It was something so intimate. It was something so powerful that for the first time in my human existence, I knew that I was incredibly, deeply, profoundly, and thoroughly loved by this person of Christ. Uh, And I felt in that moment, if um, he could have, and Jesus Christ can only do what the Father tells him to do. We know that throughout the Gospels, that Jesus simply did what his Father told him to do. I felt that maybe if he had his way in that moment, he would have loved to have pulled me into himself. And instead of just becoming the light and the love that I knew in that moment, he would have become the life. And his his being would have opened up as a portal, as a gate, if you will. And he would have become the way, 
the gate, the truth, and the life to the Father. But instead of pulling me into himself, um, he turned. And I felt in that moment that um, maybe he had received uh, a command or a message from the Father. I don't know. Part of this is speculative in this particular instance. Maybe when I first saw him in the garden, disguised as a gardener, if you will, working on a gravestone, maybe that was emblematic of my own death, which may have been both literal and poetic. And maybe in that moment, God was saying to him, through him, because Jesus Christ can only say what the Father tells him to say, as a mouthpiece of eternity, if you will, I heard these words, and they came to me like words um, blowing in the wind, like a leaf blowing in the wind. So as he's turning, these words floated back to me in this state of, of suspended time. And as he turned, I felt like these words floated to me. And I felt like they came from the Father through Jesus Christ, the Son. And I felt like he said to me very clearly, very definitively, and very precisely, it's not your time, period. Dramatic pause. Your mission is not done. And then that moment disappeared, and people have asked me since then, you know, do you think it was an angel? Um, why do you think it was the risen Christ? And I can only tell you this, that whenever humans, of which I am one, came into an encounter with the divine or with uh, angelic beings, unless the angels came in disguise, uh, there was a certain amount of fear and trepidation. In fact, the first thing an angel would say to the human throughout the Old and New Testament is, fear not. Uh, God has given you favor. I have come to give you a message because... For many of us, to, to look at an eight-foot-tall shaft of light gleaming like a glowing furnace would be frightening. To see somebody that is so full of the glory, if you will, of God and to have come from the presence of Almighty God and to be still glowing like the face of Moses was after all those days on, on top of the mountain receiving revelation after revelation from Almighty God, from Yahweh, uh, it would frighten us, and I didn't feel any fright. I felt no fear in that moment. All I felt was maybe more akin to what Mary felt in the garden, which was uh, speaking to Christ an affectionate word, uh, a word of endearment, which was Rabboni. And I felt in that moment like, yes, this is my teacher. Um, and more than that, uh, this is my friend. In some ways, uh, and I, I have a hard time explaining this, but it felt like he was my brother, that in a spiritual adoptive way, uh, we shared the same father. And so we were brothers, but even more intimately and even higher on, on the metaphoric theological scale, not only were we brothers in that moment, but he was my captain. Here was the, the Lord, the captain, the high captain of the hosts of the angel armies of, of, of the heavens. And here was my captain of which I am following into battle, of which I am partnering with him to start all these band of brothers, to start all these base camps, um, which you can learn more about at graceexplorations.com. We're starting these uh, man caves where men care all over uh, North America, especially here in Michigan and hopefully someday throughout the world. And I felt like this is the captain that I am giving my life to. This is the captain who will lead into battle by example, by being at the tip of God's Holy Spirit into the space-time continuum as we know it. So I felt like he was my brother. I felt like he was my captain. But on the highest level, I felt like he was my king who's going to return someday on a white horse, the original white rider, if you will, uh, that Tolkien borrowed from. 
and he's going to come back and uh, come back a second time and this time lead us into triumph and into victory and uh, lead us into a never-ending now, this thing called eternity. And I felt that. And so I believe that I met the risen Christ because there was a tremendous amount of warmth between him and I. I felt like we belonged to each other. There was no uh, questions. There was no fear. There was no litmus test. There was no uh, having to recite Bible verses or, or giving the right uh, answers to the right questions or, or have all my sins listed against all the good things that I've done. It wasn't a cosmic Santa Claus moment. It was more of, I know him and he knows me, and in this particular moment, it's all that matters, that I have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that he speaks to me, and I speak to him, and now we have met as friends, as brothers, as a captain would be to his soldier, as a king would be to his knight. I felt that in that moment. I also felt like the two men on the road to Emmaus were Uh, Christ was in disguise to them until the very end, actually until after they had conversed with one another. And they were on the road to Emmaus, and they didn't realize that they were actually having a dialogue with the risen Christ. But they felt this glowing, burning ember inside their heart, and they said, wasn't it like uh, our hearts were full of fire, our hearts were on fire, our hearts were warm when he was with us? And that's how I felt in this moment. Even though my my heart at this moment, and I'll explain medically what was going on, was in cardiac arrest. I felt my heart was glowing like a burning ember, that, that there was this God particle that uh, was coming alive inside of me in that brief moment of time. So taking you back to chronological time out of Keros time, now I've left the presence of the risen Christ. And meanwhile, while all of this was happening, I had collapsed on the side of the running trail on a busy road, very fortunately, very providentially, And I came to this place where um, I was not in control of the narrative and it was going to play out the way it was going to play out, the way God had already um, preordained it, if you will. And in fact, I think it became very obvious as the story develops that God already knew that this was going to happen and how it was going to happen and had me delayed for 10 minutes because another person in the story had to also be delayed uh, that was critical for my survival. And so I bring you now back into chronological time, and at this point, uh, 10 to 15 minutes as he laps off of the clock, I collapsed on the side of the running trail. Uh, my body became like a, sh- uh, a white sheet and uh, was noticeably dead. That takes a few minutes usually for that to happen. And meanwhile, a, uh, a person drove by, uh, actually a registered uh, nurse, actually a nurse practitioner who uh, ends, ends up going to my church, found this out after the fact, and he's driving by with his family, and, and they're in a hurry because they're 10 minutes behind. Their kid had to do a potty break. They have three young children in the back seat, and they both look on the side of the road, and they're like, hey, what's going on here? It looks like this guy is resting because my hands were behind my head. My knees were partially up, and they were almost ready to drive by, and then his wife says, no, I think you need to take another look. I think th- th- this guy might be actually dead, and so um, Scott looks again and says, yeah, I think you're right. And so he pulls over and goes into ER mode, which is what he's trained for, and works on me for 10 minutes without getting a pulse. Uh, broke a lot of ribs. Uh, the sternum, uh, when I asked him afterwards how it felt on his end or what it was like, he said, well, I had a, a knot in my stomach because I was working on you for quite a while, never got a pulse. 
And, um, but I kept hearing a lot of popping noises. It felt like I was jumping on bubble wrap, which if a person is trained to do actual CPR, that's exactly what they need to do. They need to hurt you because they're pumping your heart from your exterior. And uh, he was keeping blood flowing to vital organs so that I could actually have this conversation with you this morning. Meanwhile, another uh, nurse drives by, someone that he had gone to nursing school with that they hadn't seen each other for years, and she pulls over who actually ends up being a neighbor down the street from me. I know her dad from another um, uh, business that I ran at that time. And so she starts to work on me as well. They're doing CPR back and forth. Scott is actually doing uh, mouth to mouth on me. So they're going old school and they're just going at it. A third person stops and he's also trained in CPR. And all these three people are working on me and trying to get me back to life. Somebody makes a call and the EMS shows up and they shock me back to life. And um, the next thing I remember was being in an ambulance and hearing a lot of uh, noises and beeping and flashing lights and trying to talk, but there's an oxygen mask on me and there's all kinds of stuff and apparatus over top of me uh, that had brought me back to life that's getting ready to thump me again if I happen to go out. And so I was out for probably anywhere from 10 to 15 minutes. My heart had actually stopped beating, which about 180 seconds in, uh, you're clinically and technically dead at that point. So after they had brought me back to life uh, and shocked me back into this existence, I found myself not only in the ambulance, but uh, on the way to the hospital. And then I remember waking up in the hospital and just asking over and over again, uh, what just happened to me? Which is emblematic, I think, of what we're all asking right now is what in the world is going on and how did I find myself in this space where there's no more school and I don't know about my work and I don't know about the world for that matter and I don't know if I'm going to catch this virus or not and on and on and on these lists, these fearful questions uh, come into play and this went on for me for like 13 days. I ended up getting pneumonia. Uh, the pain threshold level I was similar to uh, passing the quarter-inch kidney stone which I did a couple years ago. It was that kind of pain, maybe even worse because it kept coming in waves um, and it was difficult and it was long and it was arduous, but uh, eventually I was uh, allowed to be released from the hospital. And uh, the closest the doctors could come to this was what they call a SCAD, which is a spontaneous coronary artery dissection. Uh, it's very rare, and if it happens at all, it's usually with postpartum women who've had difficult childbirths. Um, I'm certainly not in that category, but I have birthed things before businesses and nonprofits. Uh, some of which did well and some of which did not do well. I've also climbed mountains all over the world and skied to the North Pole and um, lived in a vehicle of all places for five years, which is not part of uh, the story that I'm telling today. But in other words, there was a lot of stress put on my heart in those situations. But all these cardiologists kept coming in and they were asking uh, questions. And they're like, well, we've hardly ever seen this before. We've been doing this for 15, 20 years and your case is unique. So maybe in some ways, uh, yeah, there's a medical uh, explanation to this, but it's still not certain. The doctor said, well, look, we really don't know exactly what happened other than that you died for 10 or 15 minutes. A cardiac arrest is, is a little bit different in that it's all electrical. Um, and in my case, uh, two very small arteries uh, decided to dissect on the lower left exterior of my heart and push uh, the blood in directions that then cause a cardiac arrest, um, which then uh, brought me into a, a death spiral that, that uh, by all odds should have been permanent. In fact, they tell me it was usually a 97% uh, fatality rate. In fact, when I talked to one of the EMTs, actually the ambulance driver, and asked him what 
it was like from his perspective. Um, he said, you know, every once in a while we have a patient uh, that we load into an ambulance that is, uh, in, that is straddling two different dimensions. Uh, they're not totally in time, but they're also uh, not in eternity either. In other words, they're not totally dead, but they're not totally alive. They're kind of in this in-between nebulous uh, gray area, if you will. Um, and so um, that was rather uh, insightful and rather revelatory to, to, to hear it from someone who had an outside perspective that, yeah, there was something else going on here with the story. And so maybe, just maybe, um, God knew all of this was going to happen, and uh, maybe it was an angel that touched me, if you will, or, or it felt like a, a, a thunderbolt on a clear day. It was unexpected, unlooked for, and it literally brought me to the point of death, to the land of death, where I was able to have an encounter with the risen Christ, which is why I'm able to share that with you today. And so I happen to believe that God knew all of this was going to happen, that everybody was behind schedule because everything had to go exquisitely right. Again, back to that word, eucatastrophe, um, is part of catastrophe, but everything had to go uh, completely right after everything went completely wrong to have the great uh, happy ending, if you will. So after all that stuff happened medically and explanations were given and months and months of recovery to the extent where now I'm able to do whatever I want, uh, back to running again and back to speaking again and leading a national men's ministry movement, um, it brought me to a couple of points. And the first one is this, and then I'm going to close after the second point, is this idea that time is fluid but eternity is fixed. What you believe in time decides where you belong in eternity. So when I met the risen Christ, it was beyond belief. It was actually belonging, but I was in that place with him where there was no anxiety or there was no fear because I knew him and he knew me, and that's all that mattered in that moment. We had a relationship. He speaks to me and I speak to him. Which brings me to the second point is this. If you don't know Christ, this life is as good as it gets. If you know Christ, this life is as bad as it gets. So I would ask you today... Um, you know, we, we may have some dark days ahead, uh, quite frankly. We don't know how this is going to play out with the coronavirus and all the endless implications that are occurring with that. But if you know Christ, this is about as bad as it's going to get. If you don't know Christ, this is as good as it's going to get. There's tremendous hope for those who belong to Christ in the afterlife and in this life as well because he promised us that he would never leave us or forsake us. He didn't promise us a problem-free life, but what he did promise us that he would be in the middle of those problems, in the middle of those ob obstacles uh, that could turn into opportunities. He would be in that boat with us in the raging storm, and he would be calm, and he would become the center of our calm because he is not only uh, the calm, but he is the storm itself. He's both, and all of those things listen to him. So I would ask you today to choose Christ so that you don't have to be anxious about the afterlife, so you don't have to be anxious about the present life. You can be uh, in that space where there's so much love and there's so much life and there's so much light that fear has no place anymore. So to take you back and wrap this whole thing up, um, I would like to pray a prayer with you. And maybe some of you have already prayed this prayer before years ago, uh, this idea of confessing your sins and inviting Christ into your life as your Savior. But I would like to take it a step further and I would like to ask you to pledge your highest allegiance to Christ this morning as your king um, that deserves your highest allegiance to make him your Lord, not only of this life, but of the life yet to come. To ask God and to trust God with your time 
right now and more specifically with your eternity that is yet to come or arguably is already happening right now concurrently. And what does that look like and how does that happen? Well, the Bible says that we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God, every single one of us. The Bible says that there's this thing called sin and shame which can separate us from this person of Christ, but there's also this provision, this way called the cross that Jesus has taken care of that sin and that shame and those secrets and he can forgive those so that we can come into this communion, into this relationship with the Holy Trinity of God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son and God the Holy Spirit. So I'd like to pray a prayer with you. Let's just kind of go old school and wherever you're at, whatever you're doing, maybe just bow your head or just be silent for a moment or maybe repeat these words after me and pray this prayer. There's nothing magical about this prayer, but it's powerful because it invites the living, risen Christ into your situation into your life, into your heart, if you will. Pray these words with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I confess to you that I am a sinner. I know that my sin has separated me from you, and I know the only way to get rid of that separation is to ask you to forgive my sins and to heal my shame and to touch my trauma, to bring me into that place where I can have a relationship with you now and forevermore. And today, I ask you not only to be my Savior and to forgive my sins, which I confess to you, but I ask you to be my Lord, and I pledge my highest allegiance to you as my King who is coming back for me and for all of us. I pray these words in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. Thank you for this moment that we could have together. I hope this message has been uh, inspiring and hopeful to you. I hope that you reach a point where you're no longer anxious about what's happening right now in time, but also for all of eternity. Thank you for your time. God bless you.